It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode, New Year's Festivities. Welcome back. How was your New Year? I hope it went well, that you did something you enjoyed, and that you took some time to reflect on what you achieved in 2016, and what you'd like to achieve in 2017. One thing I want to achieve is a more comprehensive look at the Egyptian calendar, and their year in a religious sense. It's something I've touched on only briefly, because until this year I've been running through time periods that don't leave a wealth of evidence on the subject. Well, now our sources are beginning to multiply, and I feel I'm at a place in the story where I can tell you something meaningful. So, for the next 12 months I'm going to be releasing a new mini-episode every month about the Egyptian religious year. Festivals, dates, celebrations, all that jazz. Today's little episode takes a look at the all-important first month of the Egyptian New Year, the month called Tech. Sometimes it's called Thoth or Thut, depending on the time period you're looking at or the source you're reading, but the ancient Egyptian term was Tech, which means drunkenness. No explanation needed, I think. This was a time of celebration, of natural revival, and of great solemnity in some parts of the country. It set the tone for the year to come, whether it would be a time of plenty or a time to tighten the belts and focus on getting through. In an agricultural subsistence economy, either one could come in any year. So the feasts and festivals of the new year were aimed a lot at ensuring that everything went smoothly. Before I begin, a quick disclaimer. Many of the festivals that the Egyptians celebrated originated in the days when they used a lunar-based calendar. Lunar calendars are frustrating, because the lunar year is approximately 11 days shorter than the solar year. So lunar events tend to wander backwards through the year. Trying to base a calendar off that gets tricky fast. To solve this, the Egyptians instituted their civil calendar, which is based on the 365-day solar cycle. When they did this, they anchored their old lunar festivals to new solar dates. But, at the same time, they still continued using that lunar calendar for many of their feasts. This makes life frustrating for Egyptologists, as they can't pin down whether a text is speaking about a lunar festival or a solar one. Anyway, let's talk about New Year's. If all the dates were aligned and correct, 
the Egyptian New Year began in our August. The first month was called Tech for drunkenness. Tech was associated primarily with three gods who each had major festivals in this month. Firstly, it was dedicated to the god Harpy, who ruled the Nile inundation and helped ensure that the flood was of a good height. More on that in a moment. Secondly, Tech was associated with Thoth, lord of the moon and god of wisdom, the counsellor to the gods. This makes some sense. Since the lunar calendar was the main religious calendar, it was appropriate to honour the lord of the moon first among all the gods. Finally, the first month culminated with a great celebration of Osiris, the lord of agriculture and the master of the fertility cycle. I already spoke in depth about the festivals of Osiris way back in episode 40, Feasting, Laughing and Dancing. I'll recap it briefly here, but I want to focus more on the festivals of Harpy and Thoth, since we haven't seen those before. The first day of the new year was called Wepet Renpet, or the opening of the year. As the sun rose on Wepet Renpet, Egyptians celebrated the rebirth of Ra out of the horizon and the renewal of the solar cycle. It was an auspicious time, of course, and the first three days of the year were given over to jubilation and to honouring the great god. But then the real business of the year began. The first festival of the new year took place on the 15th day of Tech, and it was associated with the god of the Nile flood, the great god Harpy. Harpy was responsible for the annual flooding of the Nile River, and it's the Nile flood which the Egyptians celebrated at the start of the new year. In fact, the new year is tied to that event. The flood waters, which helped fertilise the farmland and renew the soil, began to rise, ideally around late August. So for the Egyptians, the first big festival of the year was dedicated to the god responsible for making that happen, Harpy, lord of the inundation and renewer of the fields. The offerings to Harpy took place on the 15th day, around the time when the flood was expected to begin. This time was referred to as the coming of Harpy, the moment when the god returned to Egypt with the swelling of the river. It was a festive time, of course, and the people made offerings to the god. The priests, worshipping in the open air besides the river, would sacrifice goats to the god. By doing this, they hoped to ensure the floodwaters, the inundation, would be of the perfect height. So the beginning of the year was very focused on the Nile. The Egyptians wanted to make sure that the coming agricultural cycle would be a healthy one. After all, their communities, and their very lives, depended on a successful harvest. It was the foundation of the entire country and economy. Which is why, just two days after the Harpy offerings, the Egyptians were preparing for the year's first great festival, the festival of Wagi and Thoth. Wagi and Thoth was an epic festival. It ran for two and a half days, and saw the rituals of worship reach their first major climax in the year. The festival began on the 17th with Wagi Eve, and then proceeded into the Wagi festival on the 18th, and the Wagi and Thoth festival on the 19th. At each of these occasions, great offerings were made to the god Thoth, lord of wisdom and counsellor to the gods. The Wagi festival is hard to pin down, but it seems to have a character similar to the celebration of the dead. A day of the dead kind of thing? Maybe, but probably a bit more sombre. 
Worship in the Wagi festival was dedicated to the souls of the dead, and probably involved many people visiting the shrines or tombs of their family members. They would make offerings for the ka, or spirit, and the ba, or soul. They would offer hymns and prayers, perhaps even letters, to their deceased relatives, and speak to them of things occurring in daily life. The event was a serious one, aimed at ensuring the good ties between the living and those who had passed beyond. In other words, Wagi was a very big deal in the spiritual life of the average Egyptian. It was a way to commune and reconnect with those who had passed beyond. Since to the Egyptians, the dead could return to the world that we know and influence events, it was important to maintain good relationships. The Wagi festival, naturally, was a way to ensure that happened, and so it comes right at the start of the year. It's a shame we don't know more about what Wagi actually involved, but the records don't survive in any large quantity. We know there were perhaps large-scale offerings in the temples, because records from those temples indicate that the supplies coming to them increased dramatically during the Wagi festival. Say, from 10 jugs of beer a day, it would go up to 20, effectively doubling the supply. But, essentially, this was a festival devoted to the souls of those who had departed, and an important ritual to set the tone for the year ahead. The festival of Wagi, on the 17th and 18th, then blended into the festival of Wagi and Thoth. Now, again, we don't know a lot of what this involved, but we do know that this festival was old, like pre-dynastic old. So old, it used to be entirely lunar-based. In fact, the Egyptians may even have celebrated it twice every year, once on the appropriate day, and once when the actual lunar event it commemorated occurred. Wagi and Thoth was ancient, and so it was probably quite archaic in tone. Not primitive per se, but the language used in the rituals was probably Old Egyptian, very ancient style, and the acts of worship might have been the sort of things that could be expected in an older, archaic version of Egyptian society. The worship of Thoth took place in the great temples, and it would have been a very secretive affair. Nothing out in public, you see. Instead, the priests would enter the hidden sanctums at the heart of temples, alone except for a few acolytes, some singers, and maybe the king if he was present. Everyone else was excluded. This was a secret and holy affair. To be sure, the public would benefit from these festivals. After the offerings were made, the food and drink used in the temple were distributed first to the staff, and thence to the people of the community. In this way, everyone got to share in the bounties offered to Thoth, but the actual worship? That was a closed and elite affair. To open the year with such a sombre celebration is perhaps a little bit strange, but there was a reason for it. Egyptian religion was too important to the agricultural and natural rhythm of life. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. To be opened up to just anyone. Like Christianity before the Vulgate Bible, 
religious knowledge was hidden and protected, known only to a few who were skilled and capable of enacting the rituals properly. This helped keep the cosmos secure, protecting it against unnecessary threats. So, three weeks into the new year, the cosmos were being addressed and protected by a dedicated group of specialists. In effect, the Egyptian elite spent their first few weeks of the year involved in doubling down on the preservation of the world for the year to come. Of course, what's a new year without a little bit of partying? Not much fun at all, they say. The Egyptians knew this principle, and so they wrapped up the Thoth and Wagi festival with an extra day called the Day of Drunkenness. The Drunkenness festival took place on day 20 of the first month, just after the end of Thoth and Wagi. There's not much to say about it, because it's kind of in the name. The Egyptians would drink a great deal of beer, probably indulge in music, dancing, and sensual pleasures, and then stumble home, their tensions released and their heads throbbing. The drunkenness festival may have included a great deal of sexual activity, because it was associated with the goddess Hathor, who had a certain power over that aspect of life. The details are still sketchy, but more than one Egyptian biography makes reference to that person being a child of the festival of drunkenness. Kind of, or exactly like how babies born in late August and early September are stereotypically called New Year's babies. The Egyptians, like us, needed a party to let off steam. Sometimes that left a hangover, one that lasted nine months. Fun times, eh? Now, there's a common thread running through the festivals that have happened so far during the first month. The festival of Harpy, of course, is tied to the Nile inundation, which fertilises the fields and helps prepare the land for the next year of agriculture. Then there's the festival of Wagi and Thoth, which is dedicated both to the dead who live in the afterlife, and to the god who counsels the great deities and makes sure that life proceeds in its natural and proper rhythm. There's a common thread linking this, and this culminates in the third great celebration of the Egyptian New Year the dedications to the god Osiris and the reenactment of his legendary tale. Now, I'm not going to run through the myth of Osiris and the reenactment of the ritual here today, for two simple reasons. First of all, I gave a summary of it back in episode 40, but also because the festival of Osiris itself and the reenactment of his legendary tale actually took place over several months. It was a basically timely reenactment of the story itself, and the Egyptians seem to have set it up in the proper length. So, with that in mind, I'm only going to introduce the rituals here, and then in a few months we will culminate the story in the great festival Osiris, called the Koyak Festival. That's down the line. For now, what can we say about the Osiris ritual as it pertains to this first month of the year? Well, Osiris supposedly died around this time, murdered by his brother Seth. His body was cut into about 14 parts and scattered throughout Egypt. When this happened, his wife Isis obviously went into a state of great grief and mourning. The Egyptians, at least of later eras, suggested that the flooding of the Nile was in some cases influenced by the tears shed by Isis. Obviously, it could also be the god Harpy's influence, but, you know, different versions of the same power. Essentially, the Nile flood was a symbolic reenactment of the fact that Isis grieved for her husband, 
And so, as the first month was tied directly to the beginning of the inundation, this meant that the beginning of the year started with the period of mourning for Osiris. The multi-part rituals of Osiris began on day 22 of the first month, and as far as we know, they probably took place throughout Egypt. By the time of the New Kingdom, approximately 1500 BCE onwards, the cult of Osiris had become one of the most important in the country. Worship of the god took place in many towns, and the festival dedicated to him became one of the most important in the year. Osiris worship came in different forms. At the historic town of Abydos, for instance, the high priests of the cult carried a statue of Osiris from their temple over to the cemetery where the king was supposedly buried. In private life, people wore necklaces with a bronze figure of Osiris over their chest. This was a form of protection and public declaration, kind of like wearing a cross, a crescent, or a Star of David. So there was an elite form of worship that took place in temples and was secluded, and there was a more common and popular one. Osiris was a lord for all. Of course, Osiris's true home was not in this world, but in the world of the afterlife. It was here that he ruled as king of eternity, and oversaw the field of reeds or paradise. So the worship of Osiris was always most visible in the realm of tombs and of the funeral. By the 15th century BCE, the 18th dynasty, Egyptians had begun to reference Osiris widely in their tombs. Wealthy noblemen would commission texts painted on the walls of their tombs or carved onto their coffins, which referred to them as Osiris along with their name. So you might get, for example, Osiris Rekmire, Osiris Nefohotep, or Osiris Jehuti. Osiris became an epithet for the dead, a way of honouring them and giving them status in the afterlife. It was a complicated theological concept, and I'll explore it more in a later episode, particularly when we sink our teeth into the Book of the Dead. Suffice to say that as the new year began, people were taking special care of their deceased relatives. Through the Feast of Wagi, they honoured them, and then, with the Festival of Osiris, they renewed their ties with the realm of the spiritual, the Kingdom of Eternity. As I said, the power of Osiris was tied completely to the agricultural cycle. As the king died and his body was mummified, it became a cradle for new growth. Osiris's body and Isis's tears nourished the Nile River during the flood and helped to fertilise the soil. It's an extreme form of fertiliser, but I guess it did the job. It wasn't long before Egyptian artists figured out a way to represent this metaphor in paintings and in sculpture. In tombs of the New Kingdom, we start to see figures of Osiris, mummified, reclining on the ground or on a bench. From his body, shoots of grain or barley grow straight upwards, as if they are sprouting from the king's body itself. Other times, the king's skin will be green to represent growth, or black to represent the rich soil left behind by the flood. In other words, Osiris became a visual representation for the abstract idea of rebirth, of renewal, and the revitalised farmland. It's a very clever form of representation, I think, and it's one of the most powerful symbols in the Egyptian religious canon, at least to me. Egyptian artisans also figured out a way to model Osiris's rebirth and power over agriculture in three dimensions, and this tool was quite interesting. 
the sculptors would fashion beds made of wood or mud brick. These beds were rectangular, just like a normal bed, but in the centre there was a depression cut in the shape of Osiris. The depression was filled with mud or soil, and seeds were planted into the fertilised space. Soon, the seeds would sprout, and the Osiris-shaped space would fill with growth. Effectively, it's a little planting box, but the Egyptians' unique worldview encouraged them to grow plants literally from the body of the great king of the underworld. Isn't that just awesome? You can see images of Osiris, the Osiris beds, and the rituals of worship on the podcast website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com. I've also added a link to episode 40, in case you wish to check out the more detailed account of the Osiris festivals in your own time. For now, let's wrap up this first month. The Egyptian New Year was dedicated spiritually to two separate but closely connected concepts. Firstly, the Nile flood and the renewal of the agricultural year. Secondly, the land of the dead and the bond which existed between this world and the next. Because the Egyptians were so theologically talented, they connected the world of living and dead in profound ways, religious, artistic, spiritual, and physical. For the Egyptians, living on the banks of the Nile Valley, the world here and the world beyond were bound together in a symbiotic relationship. Life, death, rebirth, these three ideas came together over the first month of the new year, and the celebrations around that time, celebrations to Harpy of the Flood, Osiris of Agriculture, and Thoth of Wisdom, were dedicated one way or another to that ecosystem. So now, the first month is drawing to a close. Let's bid farewell to Harpy, to Thoth and Osiris, and look towards the second month. Coming up, it's going to be one of the biggest royal festivals. A festival that, incidentally, may have been invented, or at least popularised, by a little old king called Hatshepsut. See you soon! Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BGW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus